The poor people of Loreto in Baja California have been hit hard by the COVID-19 virus shutdown, and they need food. Friendship with God is delivering food directly to their homes. Go to www.friendshipwithgod.org and look for the Loreto Need banner to donate or call 619-599-1104. God bless you. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. We all know ourselves. If we're honest about ourselves, we all know that we're not just good sinners, we're the other kind of sinner. We're the dirty, rotten sinner type. And so when we're really honest, we have a question. How can God do that? How can God justify a dirty, rotten sinner? I mean, that's important for us to know. And so in order for us to really kind of get an idea of how God does this, it's really kind of interesting when you look at a, um, when you look at a Proverbs in Proverbs 8, verse 27, really talks about the love, the special love relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. Proverbs 8, 27, it's very interesting because he, the, the Lord Jesus is speaking, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. You know, it just gives us a little picture, just a little picture of the relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ when it says, I was by him, as one brought up with him, I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. We can't comprehend fully the love between God the Father and God the Son, but we're getting a little bit of a picture here when it just says, I was by him. This is John 1. This is John 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's the name for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The word was with God. I was by him. See, and then he described his position with God when the Lord Jesus is here, and when it says in John 1.18, John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. See, God the Father, God the Son, when it says in Proverbs 8, they were always together. They were doing everything together. When he came, he said in John 16, 28, John 16, 28, 
I came forth from the Father. I'm coming to the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. He's with the Father. He's always with him. He leaves the Father. He does his work down here of redemption, and then he goes right back up to the Father. It's the only time when they were ever separated from each other is when he came to the world and he came to become our sacrifice. That was the only time when they weren't together. And as soon as the Lord Jesus finishes his work, boom, back up, as it says in Proverbs 8.30, to continue to be daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And so, and then when the Lord Jesus, when, when God the Father is speaking about the Lord Jesus, he says in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42.1, 1, he says, behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, daily his delight, in whom my soul delighteth, I put my spirit on him, he'll bring judgment to the Gentiles. So he describes God the Father, describes the Lord Jesus as the one in whom his soul delights. He's here on earth, twice he breaks through the silence when he says in Matthew 3.17, Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, he was saying to all the people there, listen, you gotta understand, that's very special to me, that person there. He's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17.5, Matthew 17.5, Peter is up there saying, whoa, this is really a momentous time. We've got Jesus and Moses and Elijah. I know, we'll make three monuments here. That's what we'll do. Matthew 17.5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Do you get the picture how much God the Father is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ? He so loves him. When Abel was killed by Cain, we're told that the shed blood of Abel cried out from the ground. And the ears of God heard that. It says in Genesis 4.10, Genesis 4.10, he said, what hast thou done? He's speaking to Cain. What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. See, after Cain kills Abel, God said, the voice of Abel, it's not just speaking to me, it's yelling to me. It's crying to me from the ground. Now, can't you just see God looking and listening to the blood of Abel? It's crying to him from the ground. Now, again, think of this love that God the Father has for God the Son, and just imagine God the Father now looking and listening to the blood of of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God the Son, the one who is his daily, his delight, the one who he wants to be with more than anyone else. It's crying to him from the ground of Calvary. And can't you imagine God the Father with all of his focus on the blood, he's really focused on that blood, he's really eagle-eyed, focused on that blood because he's delighted in him for all of his eternity, that's his blood. And the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, with it's crying out, it's crying out, forgive them. Forgive them, I died for them. Just like he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the voice that's come out, and the Father's all taken up with the voice of the blood saying, forgive them. And now just imagine that as he's all focused on that, and then we find ourselves also shoulder to shoulder, which is what we're gonna do on Good Friday, and we do hopefully every day, shoulder to shoulder with God, looking at the same blood. We're just shoulder to shoulder, and we can almost like look over, there's God the Father. He looks over us, that's, there's us. And then just imagine another voice starts to come out, and that voice is coming from another place, and it's listing all of our sins. And so God is hearing one voice listing all of our sins, everything that we've done against him, 
And God is hearing another voice of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Father, forgive him. And you know what God the Father does? He says, God the Father says, justify him. Because he hears the voice of the blood of the Lord saying, forgive him. So he says, justify him. Justify him because I'm, that's the blood of the one I'm well pleased with. That's how we can understand how God the Father could justify us in spite of our sins. It's the voice of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ crying out, Father, forgive them, that's louder than the voice of our accuser. Because justification is a legal term. It comes from God the Father, and it can't be reversed. And every time it's given here, justification in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Greek, it's always in a one-time tense, never a continuous tense. There's never a continuing justification. It's just, it happens once when God raises his gavel up and comes down with it and says, justified, that's it. It's one time, that's it. That's why it's so important in verse nine to see what it means when it says, justified by his blood. Justified by his blood. You know, there's a psalm that very powerfully shows the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus. This Psalm 85, 9, Psalm 85, 9, such a powerful psalm here because what it says, it says here, it says, his salvation, Psalm 85, 9, his salvation is nigh them that fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, what does that mean? I want you to think now of two persons. I want you to think of two persons here, and one was, one's named Mr. Mercy, and the other is called Mr. Truth. Here's mercy, here's truth. And mercy is looking at you. Mercy is looking at you. And mercy is saying, ah, give him a break. Let him go. Let him off the hook. Don't judge him for his sins. That's what mercy's saying. And truth is also looking at you, and truth is saying, no way. He has broken the laws of God. He has got to be judged for his sins. Now, mercy and truth, this is such a great conflict here. They get angry with each other. And they get so angry with each other, they're almost ready to duke it out over this. And so, but instead, you know what happens? Mercy goes to that corner of the room. Truth goes to that corner of the room. And they turn their back on each other. And as they're turning their back on each other, all you hear is mercy saying, you know, one corner, mercy is saying, give them a break. And truth is saying, give him judgment. Give him all the judgment he deserves. And they're at the two corners of the room. Now I want you to picture two more people. I want you to picture two people, two more people here. They come together. This one's called Mr. Righteousness. This one's called Mr. Peace. And they both are looking at you and your sins. And Peace is looking at you. Mr. Peace is looking at you and he says, poor guy. He's tormented with this war with God. Bring peace to his soul. Bring peace between him and God. But then righteousness is also looking at you and your sins, and he's saying, no way. There's no righteousness in him. What he thinks is his righteousness is really filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6. So bring it on. Bring on the full judgment for his unrighteousness. And again, these two people, unrighteousness and peace, they're so mad at each other that, again, they go to these two corners. And they go to these two corners, and peace over here is saying, bring peace to his soul, bring peace between him and God. And over there, righteousness is saying, bring righteous judgment to him. He deserves it. So here we are. We got these two people opposed here, two people opposed here, and all of a sudden, there's silence. You can't believe your eyes. Mercy and truth, they start off, they just turn around from these two corners, 
They walk toward each other. They get to the middle of the room here, and they just sit down, and they start laughing and talking with each other. You say, what happened? And then it's even more amazing is that these two, you know, peace over here and righteousness over here, they also turn around. They start approaching each other. They're laughing and they're smiling. They kiss each other when they get here to the middle. And you look at there and you say, how could these sworn enemies of each other turn around and kiss each other? How's that happening? And you see the reason why? Because mercy and truth, because peace and truth are together, and righteousness and peace are together, and it all has to do with where they met. That's the reason why they're all together. You know where they met? Calvary. Calvary. You know what they all saw? Blood. Blood on the ground. Blood that was shed. That's the power of the blood to justify us. That's a picture of how God could do what it says in Romans 3. Romans 3, 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a sacrifice through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the sins of the remission of the sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now get this, Romans 3, 26, Romans 3, 26. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That's how it could happen. That's how those parties all meet together. What comes after that is important. In Romans 5.10, Romans 5.10, it says, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is reconciled by his death, that's Good Friday, justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus, that's Good Friday, saved by the life, that's Sunday, that's Easter, saved by the life. And our response, joyful, joyful. See, twice it says in there, much more. Why? This is a dramatic love, a very dramatic love. But there's one enemy that we have, and it stands in the way of us putting our faith in the blood of the Lord, and that's described in Romans 4.4. Romans 4.4 says, to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace but of debt, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. See, the only person who can avail himself, the only person who can take advantage of this great blood that does so much, is the person that worketh not. It reminds me when I was in Ethiopia one time, and there was um, a priest there from France, and, and he was all in his robes and everything. He really looked quite the sight, but anyway, that's where he was. In Ethiopia, in the, at, the, at the Hilton there in Addis Ababa, he was in the Hilton. And so I, I went up to him, and, and, um, and I, I told him how I came to the Lord Jesus Christ and how excited I was you know, to be a, a child of God, you know, and he was listening to me and listening, and he says, yes, he says, and he says, oh, that's great, that's good, but you must keep the sacraments. Sacraments, oh, yes. You must, the, the mass and everything else and things like that. Him that worketh not is the one that receives. Why? Because a person who works, it's all about debt. It's all about debt. In other words, a person who works, what do you work for? You work for wages, 
And when you work for wages, then when you work, then the person you're working for has a debt they have to pay you. And that's a picture who's, of a person who's relying on his works to get to heaven. He's expecting that, well, God's indebted to me now. He's got to reward me. He's got to let me into heaven because of my good works. That's why it says in Romans 4, 5, Romans 4, 5, that the only one that, re, that receives all these benefits from the blood is the one that worketh not, him that worketh not. He's not trusting in his works. And this is where the religious Jewish people have gone wrong, as it says about them in Romans 10.3. Romans 10.3, he said, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, in other words, God's way of righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Each person in Orthodox Judaism is simply going about to establish their own righteousness. And the way out of that trap is to become the person who, who is described as him that worketh not. So instead of working, it's believing on him that justifies the ungodly. When it says believes on him, it doesn't just mean, well, I believe Jesus lived. I believe that he was born of a Virgin Mary. I it means more than that. It means more than that. Because it says in James 2.19, James 2.19 Thou believest that there is one God, oh, good, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. That puts you right in the category with the devils. Perfect. It doesn't mean that. It means when the Bible says, when, when the devils believe that it's true, and then they get to try to get others to believe it's not true, but when it says that we believe on him, it's got that word, that Greek word that means into him. Believe into him. In other words, it's believing into him that justifies the ungodly. In John 3.16, John 3.16, when it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoso believes into him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, this is what it means to believe into. It's this picture of Jacob with the moray eel grip on God in Genesis 32. That's what it means it's to see, it's, it, Jacob saw his need. I need a blessing. I won't let you go unless you bless me. It's to see our need as dirty, rotten sinners clinging to the Lord. It's to believe into him. It's to, to trust in the mercy of God who justifies the ungodly. That's really what faith is. Faith is clinging. Faith is clinging. Faith is clinging to the Lord Jesus like Jacob clung to him in Genesis 32. Just like what the Rock of Ages hymn says. Rock of Ages hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Faith is clinging, it's clinging. What a description of God in Romans 4, 5, as he is the one who justifies the ungodly. And then the person who, who believes in that, his faith is counted as righteousness. God's, God justifies the ungodly. What does that mean? God justifies the ungodly, the dirty, rotten, sinner type of ungodly. And those who were, there were those, uh, we see that in, in the case of John the Baptist, they flocked to him, many were coming, and as they were coming, they were confessing their sins, and they were, in Matthew 3, 5, there went out to him, Matthew 3, 5, uh, Jerusalem, all Judea, the region about Jordan, baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Can you imagine that? But they were, they were just open and confessing their sins. He, then he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, and he said to them, 
O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's a nice welcome. But he said, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. Think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. I say unto you, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. That wasn't very flattering. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the tree. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So here are these people. Just imagine the scene. Most of the people are coming there. They're confessing their sins. They're crying. They have a broken heart over their sins. They're confessing, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And then there comes others, and they're not crying, and they're not confessing, and they just want to be baptized along with everybody else, but they're not confessing. And John the Baptist warns them and says, the wrath of God. He says, the wrath of God. And he gives them a very solemn warning. He gives them a very, sees right through them. He says, I know what you're trusting in. You're trusting in your birth, that you are sons of Abraham. But John the Baptist says, let me tell you something. God is a gardener. And God the gardener has just taken his ax and put an ax mark at the root of your trees, at the, at the base of your trees. That was an old custom in those days, that whenever they had a tree and they didn't get any fruit off of the tree for the season, that they said, okay, I'll give it one more season. One more season, and then I'm gonna chop this tree down, I'm gonna replace this tree. And I'll get one more season, just so I remember, because I'm the gardener, just so I remember which tree it was that didn't bake any fruit, I'm gonna put an ax mark at the base of the tree, and that's what they did. And so that, therefore, the next season comes around, there's no fruit, cut the tree, gets cut down. That's what John the Baptist was saying to these people. God's a gardener, he's in his orchard here, you're part of his orchard, and you haven't brought forth fruits to God, you haven't brought forth confession, you haven't told God you're a dirty, rotten sinner so that you can receive his grace. And so he's put that there. He's put that ax mark there at your root, at your base. What a great term, him that justifieth the ungodly. As a matter of fact, if you wanted one short description of the gospel, that's it. The gospel justifies the ungodly. That pretty much sums it up. The gospel of God justifies dirty, rotten sinners. Now, Romans 4, 5, it says, to him that worketh not, believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. See, this is not automatic when it says his faith is counted for righteousness. Justification is not automatic. It's only for those who put their faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus, believing into him with his total reliance on the blood. And God says when a person does that, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's an accounting term. That's an accounting term. When Paul was dealing with a person named Philemon, his servant Onesimus, who had wronged Philemon and, and, and ran away, and so Paul says, look, take him back, take him back. And then he says, uh, look, I know he's done stuff against you, but let, let, me, let me just ask you, Paul says in Philemon 1.18, Philemon 1.18, if he hath wronged thee, if Onesimus has wronged thee, or owes thee aught, put that on my account. Just put it on my account. So this is what Paul's saying. He says, put that on my account. That's the word. That's the same word. In other words, God says, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll put righteousness on your account. I'll count it to you for righteousness. Same word. Wow, what a thing we have here. So that we've seen here in Romans 5, 9 is that the blood justifies us. And now we can add this to the list of all the things that the blood of the Lord Jesus say. We can say, behold the blood that redeems us. Behold the blood that makes us come near to God. Behold the blood that cleanses our souls. Behold the blood that gives us peace with God. Behold the blood that removes our sins and now behold the blood 
that justifies us. That's why the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is all that heaven asks for. That's all that heaven asks for, and it's all we need is the blood of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the blood. Lord, thank you that you gave the blood, Lord Jesus. It was your blood. Just like you said in Leviticus 17, 11, I've given it to you on the altar. You gave it to us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your precious blood in Jesus' name. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. The poor people of Loreto in Baja California have been hit hard by the COVID-19 virus shutdown, and they need food. Friendship with God is delivering food directly to their homes. Go to www.friendshipwithgod.org and look for the Loreto Need banner to donate or call 619 599 1104. God bless you.